what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. Foot Candle Films. Film news and reviews from two guys who really like movies. This episode is brought to you by the Foot Candle Film Society. For a schedule of upcoming screenings and membership information, visit the Society's website at www.footcandle.org. Hello and welcome to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. My name is Alan Jackson and I am the co-director of the Foot Candle Film Festival and the co-director of the Foot Candle Film Society. With me is Chris Fry, also the co-director of both of the same two organizations I mentioned earlier. Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Looking forward to the show today. Should be should be interesting. Yeah, it's a kind of a Halloween episode because I know this is about the time it's going to be coming out and people can listen to it. And we are uh, weaving in a little bit of a Halloween theme on some things. Believe it or not, I know how that's going to fit in with our show. <laughs> and we're going to have two reviews uh, that we're going to talk about about films. One, a fairly new film. That's the film uh, First Man from Damien Chazelle starring Ryan Gosling. And then we're going to move into a review of a very classic film, something we don't get to do very often, but I'm glad we are doing it for this occasion. The original 1978 Halloween, John Carpenter's Halloween, mainly because A, it's Halloween time, and B, uh, we know that there's the new David Gordon Green version of Halloween that's coming out here in the next few days as well. So we thought that was a nice kind of lead-in review to get you primed for that remake when it's coming out here. After that, we'll move on to some movie news, and then we'll wrap up the show with a recommendation from each of us of a film we think you ought to seek out or try to see if, uh, if you're able to. So, Chris, we're going to jump right into our Halloween episode. I am going to make the case that First Man is a bit of a horror movie, so that will be something we'll hmm. tease and we talk about in the review. So that's how I'm tying it all together in our okay. Halloween-themed episode for, for the year. So let's jump right into that first review, which is Damien Chazelle, the director of La La Land, his latest film, First Man. walk on the moon that'd be something we've chosen a job so difficult requiring so many technological developments we are gonna have to start from scratch In First Man, we have a look at the life of astronaut Neil Armstrong as he's getting ready to do his legendary space mission that made him the first man to walk on the moon on July 20th, 1969. You get to see the buildup of some of the events before that. Um, this film, as Alan mentioned, you mentioned it is from the director who gave us La La Land. And also before that, we had Whiplash and uh, Guy O'Matter. Guy Madeline on a Park Bench, I think is the name of the other smaller film that he made. So considering those first three films and now with this new film, how do you think this fits into the realm of Mr. Damien Chazelle and his filmography? Well, I was I'm a huge fan of Whiplash. I think Whiplash is a great film. It was one I think of my you favorite. and I split on that when we, we reviewed it on the show. I definitely liked it more. It was one of my favorite films that year it came out. And I'm high on La La Land, although probably not as high as maybe I wanted to be when I came out of it. It was a good film and I, I enjoyed it. 
I felt it missed some marks and I felt like, uh, you know, well, the first half was relatively strong. The second half was not so much, but overall I still admired it. I thought it was a great movie. I thought it just maybe was a little overhyped as it came to the point of seeing it at that time. So overall, I'm a fan of Damien Chazelle. I, I like his work. I was really intrigued by this film when I saw the trailer and saw the announcement because it is really about as different a film as you could make. I mean, he still Wall incorporates lots of music and disco and stuff from the era, right? No. <laughs> well, there is there is music, slight use of music, but it's more uh, it's more in the scene music sure. and. There is orchestration. I'm joking. Which I'll mention. I'll mention a little bit. So there is a musical element to the film a little bit, but definitely nowhere to the point the previous three films did. This, I really do feel like, is about as different a film, um, both stylistically and tone and everything from his previous works. So I think it's it's a good entry in his filmography. Although I'll be quite honest in saying the film really didn't work for me personally. And I'll get into some reasons why in a little bit. I think the thing that probably impressed me the most about this film is everything on the technical side. So mm-hmm. if you take every, imagine the Academy Awards and every award category for technical aspects of the film, cinematography, sound design, sound editing, uh, visual effects, um, all those things. Yeah, this is a great candidate for all of those. And I'm really impressed with the technical nature of the film. It's all the other awards, the writing and the acting ones I'm going to have a little more concern with and I don't think work as well within this film. I will say again, I think it was an interesting entry in his filmography because I'm always admiring when directors will do something different than Hmm. previous works. Sure. And he absolutely has done something different. This is a biopic. He hadn't done a biopic before. This is a a historical kind of set in a different time period, which isn't something he's really done uh, explicitly, uh, it's not heavily based in music. Uh, it's not a happy film. <laughs> There's very little joy in the film, and that's actually something I'll get to with some of my concerns. Is that I thought it was a very, very morose film, much more than I felt like it maybe needed to be. So yeah, I will say on the likes side, I think it's a technical marvel. Sure, I think it's an amazing looking film. I think. Uh, the realism put into the film in many aspects is amazing. Uh, the film stock that was used, the documentary style shooting that went on, all the technical sides I thought were amazing. We'll get to the other stuff in a little bit. So how about you? What what, what did you take away as, as liking? Well, film? I think or you and I are kind of work? on the same page with this film. And, you know, we there's the 600-pound or 80-million-pound elephant in the room that is expectations. Yeah. And... Although I was not the hugest fan of Whiplash, I definitely admired it. It kept my interest. Guy in Madeline on a part bench, that being his first film, yeah, it was okay. And it really gave me like what was going to come down the road for La La Land. And I, I liked La La Land, I think, a little better than you. No, um, actually, I, th- I don't think you did. I, oh, really? I, I think I was okay. a little, little, little higher on it. Um, I know you had some concerns about the repetitiveness of the music and songs huh. and all that. I, I, yeah. I guess in retrospect, I've forgiven a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, probably. You maybe our opinions have changed a little. I bit. think I'm they actually, have. I might actually have seen mine go down a little, little bit. bit and yours and mine's kind of risen so, up. Yeah, that may be where it is. So uh, going into this film, I was I remember mentioning this film a while back when it was first announced, and I was like, you know, I'm interested to see what he's going to do without his crutch of music because yeah. that's what he's kind of relied on for the first. No, he's done a good job, but just something that's going to be devoid of it. How is he going to do? And I think you and I are on the same page with. And I guess expectation-wise, 
this just left me kind of numb. Yeah. And I was kind of surprised by that because his films have always kept me engaged, whether or not I've gone on the ride or not. They've kept me engaged. And with this film, I will actually, a listener of ours, a friend of ours also, but listener to the show, Brad Hass, was talking about how his reaction upon walking out was it was the longest funeral that he'd ever attended. And, mm-hmm. and he, then he went on to explain, he said, you know how, when you, you go to a funeral afterwards, people kind of walked out, they're kind of in a daze and they've seen something kind of serious and they've maybe talked to people, but they're all just kind of numbed out. And mm-hmm. that kind of, and I was like, you know, that's actually, and he said, and for something like, you know, he said, I understand maybe what the director was trying to go for about all the lives that had been taken and about what was going on in politics at the time. But the guy walked on the moon mm-hmm. and you would think there would be a little bit more kind of jubilation about a that little, or celebration or something. Yeah. And instead, it's like it's just focusing on really, as you mentioned, morose, really sad themes. And he's like, that just really... I don't know. It was just very odd. And I, I think that kind of encapsulates my thoughts. Yeah. And it seems like you're nodding that it kind of hits what you were thinking on too. Just, I can admire it, but I just, I don't know. I feel like it was, I don't know. It just, it was, it was very interesting take mm-hmm. on the first man to walk on the moon. Well, I said in the intro, half joking, but half not about this, having some elements of a horror film. Mm-hmm. I, it's a scary film. I mean, there's actually moments in the film where if you will, if you have a child that is aspiring to be an astronaut, hmm. you may not want them to see this film because it's actually a pretty harrowing view, I feel like, mm-hmm. of the space program at the time. Um, a lot of the anxiety that was going on, obviously there were accidents and there were situations and we lost some some people in the program. That's played up and explored a lot in the film right. to the point where you never really get a sense of any joy from Neil Armstrong and what he does. Now I will say from what I've read and understand about Neil Armstrong as a person, it was pretty much him. He was not a jubilant guy. He was not someone who was going to crack jokes and be light about things. He was a pretty serious guy. Hmm. Interesting. And we do learn in the film very, very early on, not a, not a spoiler, but you know, he and his wife, lose a child pretty early on a daughter, uh, a daughter before a very, very young daughter before he really gets deep into the space program. So that's carried through the entire film. And I understand that I don't need the film to be a, a big romp and I don't need it to be a Apollo 13, which was tried to play it a lot lighter in a lot of moments and tried to have fun with the film for the most part, except when they were having some issues on the, on the mission. Um, I can get this being more serious and more dour, but I, I think they just took it too far. I think it was just really hard to come out of this film feeling any emotion whatsoever, other than honestly some anxiety and fear. Because mm. I do think there's the Apollo 10 mission that takes place, of course, before Apollo 11, where there's an accident and it and it does impact one of his friends and there are right. some deaths involved. That scene was terrifying to sure. watch. Um, even the actual final moon landing, which, you know, again, I don't feel like we're spoiling anything. People know someone did land on the moon. moon. Yes. Um, was, it's pretty harrowing, you know, getting there. I mean, the, the point of them landing, I do think the ending moon scene is, is pretty amazing. And I think it's probably my favorite part of the whole film is that last 10 minutes, Hmm. uh, with him on the moon, but getting there is still pretty darn scary and harrowing and then of course there's a, a mission he has in between where he's up there trying to do a docking uh situation with a, a like a little uh 
to kind of mimic what they're going to be doing whenever the moon landing happens. And that goes horribly wrong and is extremely scary to watch. So sure. it was a, it was a frightening film. <laughs> it really was. Which uh, yeah. not, yeah, I think it just not what you expected. And I no. would, yeah, echo that. And, you know, you mentioned, unfortunately for me, the accidents are when things are going wrong. That's when I was kind of woken up yeah, a little do. bit because yeah. those instances kind of got you a little bit more engaged. Um, I was surprised that the moon, the actual landing on the moon, getting to the point where they were landing. Yes, that again, you mentioned that it was kind of a, a tense scene. But once they got down to the moon, I found myself actually really underwhelmed. And I was kind hmm. of surprised by that. Now, neither you nor I saw this in an IMAX theater. Yeah. And I understand that if you're fortunate enough to get to do that, they kind of change the aspect ratio and then you kind of experience the moon. I think that probably would have helped me a little bit. Well, I definitely think bit. it would have been nice um, to see it that way. And I think there again, maybe also because I was expecting a little of elation mm-hmm. or a sense of yeah. achievement. We definitely didn't get that. And I didn't get that. And so instead, it was kind of like... I was view. I was doing a viewing at a funeral. It's kind of like I'm viewing the moon, and you're kind of like, okay. And then there's there's not a lot of music at that point. There's yeah. And there's a lot of shadows. There's not a lot of movement. And maybe realism of what say, the moon's like. I think but, I was more impressed with that moon scene, landing scene because I felt like that was pretty darn authentic. I see. You know, it's like, yeah, it's the moon. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, you look out, and we we have become so accustomed to seeing what the moon looks like through photos and videos. But and this would be their first time. Yeah, this right? is the first time. There's never been anybody to actually stand up there before. So the fact that they took so much time, even a shot I just love, uh, I think it's just because it was so precise. He's stepping down off the ladder, mm-hmm. and his feet are still on the bottom rung or bottom panel of the ladder. He has not technically set foot on the soil yet. And there's a lot of like pause and hesitation, like checking in with the mission controls. Like, okay, I'm getting ready to step out. And it's like, we have to remember, nobody's ever stepped on that before. We assume it's like dirt and soil, but who knows? It could be <laughs> like quicksand and all of a sudden they start sinking in. They don't know. Right. So that tension I thought was really authentic and it worked for me. And yeah, it was a little dull on the moon, but that's also kind of how it looks. It's mm. a lot of shadows and it's quiet and you don't really move a whole lot and there's not a lot going on. So I just, I was amazed with how I felt authentic that sequence was. Gotcha. Uh, that sequence worked for me where not all the other ones in the rest of the film did. Uh, it was only about 10, 15 minutes at the most, you know, we had, but we had a pretty long two hours leading up to that point. I will say some other things I thought were good. About the film, uh, even though I said I, I don't feel like there was a lot of emotion, I don't feel like there was a lot of real, just uh, there wasn't a lot of emotions to grab a hold of in the film. Uh, everybody was pretty down, everybody's pretty dour, everybody's pretty serious and focused on what's going on. I will say though, Claire Foy playing Janet Armstrong, I thought was really, really good. She was and good. I think she probably, if if she, if she had not been, if she had not been as good in, in her part. I really felt this film would have just sunk any time you were not in a spaceship. It would have just been a chore to get through. Well, she at least made it interesting and in kind of watching a real person reacting to what was going on around her. Um, when I think yeah. th- I, I agree with that. And I think again, expectation wise, I was kind of expecting this to be kind of a right stuff type film mm-hmm. and it wasn't, which I think is good to have your own unique take on the space program and kind of focus on the anxiety and how tough it was and the lives lost. 
But because of that, there was also, I felt like, a lot less dialogue. Mm -hmm. And so since everything was such a somber tone and there was not a lot of dialogue, I feel like a lot of scenes just kind of laid there. But you're correct in saying that I feel like when Claire Foy was on the screen, she did speak a lot. She kind of had to bring emotions out of her husband, Mm -hmm. called him on the carpet about, hey, you better tell your kids you may not come back, which was a really good scene. It's a great scene. Um, And I agree that I think she kind of helped certain parts of the movie come alive. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas otherwise, but you know, it's odd to say, and I think it maybe just has to do with direction and maybe the script and what you're choosing to show on screen. Because I remember a film from last year, different time period, or maybe it was two years ago, but um, Dunkirk. Mm -hmm. And that film was kind of long, didn't have a whole lot of dialogue, but just the way with the cinematography and the way they were, and they did cut between different stories, but just the way that was constructed seemed to move better. And this just... I don't know. It, it felt every minute of the two hours and yeah, 21 right. minutes. You're right. Dunkirk, so. there was no joy in Dunkirk. No. Either. And but so it's not that. The way the film was put together and paced, you're right. You you didn't focus on that. It's like you're going through an experience. There was moments of that with First Man where you're going through the experience. I felt, I mean, there's a great sequence when uh, um, Neil Armstrong and his crew are getting on board as the Gemini, as we would call it, but they called it Gemini, Gemini. <laughs> uh, one of the Gemini missions where they were going to go up and do a docking situation to kind of go through that and see if they could actually do dock with a, a, a floating uh, spacecraft up in the, up in the uh, up in space. Right. And as he's walking to the rocket, you know, there's a scene where he looks up and it's like everything's shaking and they're like these swinging hang, uh, uh, fluorescent lights. Yes. And he can look out the window and he saw the other rocket that's been sh- shooting off. That moments like that were amazing because it's like you really felt like you were in his shoes, seeing the things he's seeing and feeling some of that same nervousness he was. So that's where I love the film and it worked. But then it's just when they got back home, everything was just so tough to go through and tough to sit through and tough to wait through. And, you know, you just kind of kept waiting for, okay, when are they going to get back up in space again? Because not, not because I just want everything to happen in space. It's like the stuff on the ground is so dour and right. just serious. I, I kind of need more here's, of that energy. Here's something that I want to I ask you about. Um, I've heard people say, you know, you could kind of pair up his movies where a guy and Madeline on a park bench and La La Land, obviously both those are musicals. So those kind of pair together. Whiplash has music in it, but it's about a drummer's obsession, an obsession with music. And you could say with First Man, it's about the obsession of getting to the moon and with Neil Armstrong's obsession. How do you, do you feel like, uh, well, it's a loaded question, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but how do you feel like they did a good job of portraying the obsession with Neil Armstrong? I I don't feel like they did. And that's, okay, I'm kind of on the same page. I mean, I never really got that sense of him, like what's driving him to want to do this. I, I would agree, and I think that's where uh, that's where I stumble with the movie because mm-hmm. if that's what you're doing, then we need to get a little bit more inside the head of Neil Armstrong. And I granted, I understand that from what you're saying, accurate where he kind of kept things at a distance. Yeah. He was Mister No Nonsense, but then we're not getting enough inside his headspace that we can kind of understand what he's going through. Even kind of some of the threads with his daughter um just maybe yeah. the way it was portrayed by ryan gosling who i like as an actor but there's so much of a distance that i don't know well and I, it, I can't connect with the character no absolutely and that's what makes we were coming on the scene that claire foy had late in the film um where she's basically confronting neil a bit before he goes on the moon uh, mission 
about he needs to talk with his sons and he needs to have this conversation. That scene, while it was really good and she was amazing in it, should have been a lot more powerful because Uh. we should have had a little more insight as to why Neil was putting that distance and why Neil was had the obsession with the moon and how it was impacting his ability to have his family close around him. We understand the death of his daughter early on is, is still a ghost that's carrying through in the film. We get that. But I just felt like because, like you were saying, we don't know, we don't really understand his his obsession, not obsession, but just his drive to go to the moon. And I don't really understand how his fa- his daughter's passing has negatively impacted his relationship with his sons. If I had known those things, then we get to that scene that we're talking about where Janet is really confronting him and it's a really well done scene on her behalf, but it should have worked. It should have hit a lot harder. And I think because we didn't have that insight, it it didn't. Um, And then that all brings me to, to the very, very last shot, which is basically Neil and, and, and Janet. And it's a shot that just, it's a scene that just doesn't work for me because I don't think it earned it. It's a very quiet Serious scene once again. It's the two of them kind of getting to see each other after the moon landing. Okay. And where I think there should have been some feeling of emotion in the audience, I, I don't think we felt anything because it's when it's he's just, in, um, what he's in like a contam- contaminated, you know, he's decontaminating. He's, yeah, room. he's in a behind a glass wall, and the two come together and get to see each other. It's the first time they've seen each other since he's been gone for, I guess, what is it, a week and a half, something like ten that. days, something like that. Was the whole moon mission? Um, and, you know, I understand it being a quiet scene because a lot of stuff had transpired between them before he left. And it's a pretty emotional thing. But I just I didn't feel anything. And I think that's that that was how the, the movie ended. Mm-hmm. And that's a tough shot to end on if you didn't build up the emotional investment in both characters. I felt it with her. I got her. I, I just did not get him. Yeah. So, um, and such an odd feeling to walk out of the movie. And I. <laughs> I feel the people that I was in the theater with, it was kind of the same thing. They're kind of like, okay. You know? It was almost like you just kind of exhale and like, okay, well, that was something we just watched. <laughs> it's like, you know, and uh, again, I, I think when it tries to be a documentary, it tries to be a fly on the wall. It tries to really dig into the procedures and the technical side and the marvel of everything. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's just, it just doesn't hold together with the, what should be more emotion, more, understanding and, and, and with the characters. I just felt like it just dropped it there. Let me just quickly mention a couple points I've got on things I really liked about it. Okay. Um, I, I mentioned the documentary style shooting and the film stock that was used. It's got a very different quality of look than his, some of his other films and, and actually different than a lot of films we see today. It's the film stock and the shooting style almost gave it a 196 late sixties documentary feel and I thought that was obviously very fitting. It really sure. just worked. Um, I mentioned about the special effects. Um, <laughs> this is actually a film, Chris. I, was, I don't know how you'll respond to this, but as I'm watching this and watching some of the space scenes, of course, some of the quiet scenes where you've got things floating in space and all, of course, gives you a little bit of a 2001 feel in some moments. Mm-hmm. And it actually got me thinking about how I almost see this as a little bit of a more Kubrick-ish if Kubrick had to do a biography of Neil Armstrong, huh. this is a lot closer to how I think he would pull it off. Now I think he would probably do one better, 
but I think this is a more of a style that he would go for. It definitely has the tone of yeah. something like, look at the achievement, but look at the cost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could definitely, that's... And just the quietness of things when sure. they're up in space, and it's just, it's quiet, and it's more the beauty of things, you know, we got more, I got more emotion just when they look out the window and they were seeing things off in, in the distance or in space. There's a moment where they're waiting to see a connection. They're waiting to see the the thing that they're going to be docking to and they're trying to find it. And if they don't find it, they've kind of wasted the mission. And it's going to be tough getting back. And just waiting to see that in the horizon and kind of the way they framed was really kind of exciting. It was one of the more exciting moments of the film. But it's just that stillness and quietness that, that was going on I thought was really uh, – it did evoke some Kubrickish type of feelings at times. Yeah, that's that's an interesting observation. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but I could definitely see where that could be said about the film. Kind of a Kubrickian take. A little bit. If, if he was forced to make a biopic, which, you know, of Neil Armstrong, I could see it yeah. honing closer to this type of tone than maybe other films we could have, we could have had. Um, going back to, again, the horror elements, you know, I already mentioned about the Apollo 10 accident where – Three crew members died inside the capsule before it even took off because of a fire. The way that was shot in a particular shot we see from the outside of the capsule where the door after an explosion goes off inside is pretty darn scary and Mm -hmm. pretty frightening. There's also a moment, I don't know uh, what you thought about this, but uh, Janet uh, Armstrong, this is after that accident. So they just lost one of their friends and, and two other crew members. And this is someone who lived across the street from them. Mm-hmm. And she's looking out the window on moment and she sees the the widow, the wife, standing at the, uh, the, the back of a car looking at a trunk, open trunk. And as she's approaching the woman trying to find out, like, see if she's okay. We don't know what's going on. We don't know what she's looking at. We don't know what's in the trunk. I mean, it's right. actually kind of done in a little bit of a building up a horror type of feel to it. And so moments like that were really interesting to even the film. It's really just playing up the the toll that this kind of program takes. And I, I think the anxiety that the, the the family members had to live with on a daily basis. So those are those are all things I admire and I thought did really well. So are there any other likes, things uh, that you had that we um, didn't mention already? None that you, you've kind of ticked off all my checkboxes as far as things that I like. And we've talked about our dislikes. I will say um, one of the things – I guess this is a final like that I had. They did a really good job of showing claustrophobia inside the space capsule because they would show them kind of wedging themselves in there. Then they would tighten all these different things. And then you would see the doors come down and kind of get wrenched closed. And my wife sitting beside me would start shaking her head when that would act because they did that several times. They would show that several times, and she'd just be like, "Nope, nope, nope." <laughs> like, oh, I was the same way. I'm you know, not, not a fan of like no. tight spaces like that. And she's like, "No, no, no, no." So I thought they did a really good job of kind of showing you like this is how these guys were going up in space, and that was mm-hmm. the realism aspect of that particular part of showing claustrophobia. I thought no, was I, really I well done. Uh, I'll just mention a couple things that didn't work for me. I'm kind of just talked already about the general tone of the film and it not really being an enjoyable film. There not being any, any sense of joy anywhere in the film. I felt like to, to bring out of it, Ryan Gosling, I am still struggling with really. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like the Gosling. <sighs> I just, I feel like he's still playing the same part. I, I think mm. it's just, I almost get the impression that his, his mental calculations going on is, how how quiet do I am I to be with this role? I'm either going to be 
kind of aloof quiet, which is I have felt like how La La Land was. Is like I'm aloof guy. I'm not hmm. talking a whole lot, but I'm kind of a little smarmy and and, and all that. But I'm going to scale it way down for Neil Armstrong to where I'm super quiet and I just stare a lot. <laughs> I, I just I don't. That's his superpower. It is, and I, I, it still doesn't work for me. Unfortunately, his performance I think compounded what Chazelle had built with a very morose, serious film. Gotcha. Gosling exasperated that with his performance. I think it's just a lot of staring, a lot of just this very forlorn look. Um, I don't know. I think I think somebody else could have done something a little different with it. Where not to give the film more happiness, but that's not what we needed. But more emotion. You know, I think you still could have played emotion, even with a guy like Neil Armstrong. Hmm. Um, so the music, I was curious, like what the music was going to be like because I know he would brought in the same composer that did the score for La La Land, and you know, of course, Chazelle is very much a music oriented director in his previous three films. So the score I thought was pretty inconsequential, didn't really do a lot for me. But the one main theme that they kept playing at the film was pretty much borrowed theme from La La Land. Like there is an actual melody that's pretty hmm. much from the soundtrack of La La Land used throughout First Man to the point where I mean, I've heard the soundtrack plenty of times I've got for La La Land. So when they would actually swell up to this point in the, in the music, the main theme, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's totally the theme from the closing montage sequence in the end of La La Land. So that was a little distracting, too. It's like, all right, you know, how huh. I did not how derivative did it seem like it was? It did seem like it was a little derivative at moments. So hmm. um, overall, technically, I thought it was a great film. I think emotionally and story and acting, I, it didn't work for me. So, you know, I came up very split on the film. Overall, I'm going to say it's not a film for me, the way it worked. But I do think if somebody is really interested in the space program, if somebody's really interested in the historical elements of it, and you like the more of the documentary style, let's really just see what it was like. Yeah, it's absolutely an amazing film to see for that. But um, just don't go in expecting to have any, anything emotionally pulling you in. You know, Everything's kept at a distance. It's a very cold movie. It's a very... We're going to show you what will happen, but we don't really want you to feel much about it other mm-hmm. than feel nervous and anxiety whenever they're, they're, they're doing their missions. So, any other thoughts? No, that's – yeah, no. I, I think we're on the same page. I think I may have – I didn't – the acting, I guess, maybe of Mr. Gosling didn't bother me. But, um, yeah, I think taking it all back, it really surprised me that I came out of it with more of a documentary feel than I did with a narrative film. Mm-hmm. Still about a true event. But more of I thought I would come away with more of a biopic feel right. than I would a documentary feel. Yeah. So yeah, it was kind of kind of surprising, and I, I feel like maybe you and I are a little bit more conservative with our praise than I feel like a lot of other critics have been. So it's interesting. No, and it, there's definitely elements to praise in the film. I mean, oh now, sure. I, I, and you know, if people were to ask me, do you recommend it? It's really going to be a more uh, qualified answer. It's like well. <laughs> Tell me, does this kind of a film appeal to you? If so, absolutely, you need to go see this. But if you're looking for this, this isn't going to work for you. Right. I mean, it's really not. If, you go, if you're looking for a more traditional, I want to feel good about Neil Armstrong and the space program, and I want to get like kind of some, a charge out of it and see what was going on in history, yes, I don't think this is for you. But if you just want to see that true, this is what they experienced, this is what it looked like, this is what they saw – this is, you know, kind of a recreation of these things, then yeah, technically it does that amazingly well. So, 
Okay, well, that is First Man. Um, interesting feedback and review for us. It's kind of hard to say where we fall on that specifically, but um, definitely a film to check out if it <laughs> sounds like what we talked about was interesting to you. So uh, that is playing now in theaters. Uh, not doing as well box office as I think maybe the uh, initial estimates were, so I don't know how long it'll be around, but um, it's a worthwhile entry in Damien Chazelle's filmography i will say and i'll end i'll end on this note i am really just like when i heard he was doing first man i was like i can't wait to see what he's going to do with that i am really interested to see what he does next after this because of you know will he return to like a musical based film or will he continue to kind of go off the road less traveled in his career i'm because he is definitely a very capable director i feel like he does have stylistic choices in like lighting and cinematography that the people that he uses. So I think he does have a look. He does have technique. I'm, I'm interested to see what he does. Well, and, and I know we were about ready to wrap this up, but I have one thing I was going to say on that. Okay. I did not realize until reading up a little bit more on Mr. Chazelle, because I'm just, I was curious like what upcoming projects he may have okay. going on. But looking back at his filmography, did you know that as a writer, he wrote uh, the screenplay for The Last Exorcism Part 2. <laughs> I, I did not know He that. wrote the film Grand Piano. Did you ever see that? I we rev- I think, did we review it we on the show? It, like yeah. a thriller movie with uh, um, Elijah Wood. Elijah Wood. Yeah. yeah. And it, but yeah, and I think, because at first I thought he also directed that, but then I found out he just wrote no, it. he just so, wrote yeah. it. He also did the screenplay for 10 Cloverfield Lane. Okay, that I definitely did not yeah. know. Yeah. So you look at those projects and those are all horror slash thriller movies. Hmm. So that actually kind of led a little bit to why I think first man had a little bit of that more, some dread horror horror, dread elements to it. Um, So just, it's good to know that even though the films we see that he's directed have been more musically oriented, his writing has actually been more in the thriller and horror field. So kind of a a blend, possibly to some degree on that. So, that was interesting. And the one the last thing I'll mention just I completely forgot. Um, did you notice that was uh, uh, Patrick Fugit um, as Elliot, who was the friend of Neil Armstrong? Uh, he does pass away again uh, in the film early on. I saw the name come up. I didn't realize that. Was yeah. he, I thought he looked familiar, Almost but then famous. I saw the name come up. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, that's, you don't get to see him in many things, and now he's, you know— a, it probably looks like he's about 40 years old. So it's just interesting to see. Uh, I was also distracted because one of the people in the capsule that lose their life that you talked about because it catches on fire uh, is playing the Riddler on Gotham. So that also. Oh, yeah, I saw that, that. too. Yeah. So and he, like, uh, really distracted me. He wasn't in the film much. Though, no, no. So, yeah, nope, he was nope. in a pretty short period of time. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's first man. I'm, I'm officially done now. I promise. Okay. So let's move on to our next review. Which is, again, a little different for us. We don't normally go back in time and do a review of a classic film. But given the situation, it being Halloween, uh, given the fact that there is a new Halloween coming out from a director that we are kind of interested in seeing what he's doing, David Gordon Green, uh, we thought it'd be fun to go back and actually watch the original 1978 John Carpenter's Halloween. Halloween. I spent eight years trying to reach him. And then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. I think he'll come back. Halloween. 
night, he came home. John Carpenter's Halloween, Chris, could be claimed as kind of the original mask character, ignatic character that's going on a murdering spree. Uh, so it predates the Friday the 13th things? Yes. Okay. I, it does. I think Friday the 13th was 1980, okay. I believe. So it did predate, predate uh, you know, uh, Friday the 13th, obviously way before Nightmare on Elm Street sure. and yes. all these other ones too. This was kind of, in my mind, the original, like where we actually have a unstoppable force, this one character, this one bad creature that's going to go on a murderous spree. It looks like it pretty much started with Halloween, 1978. It's also kind of the start of John Carpenter, who became a much bigger director over time, uh, doing Escape from New York, Big Trouble in Little China, The Thing. Um, So he obviously had quite a career after after this as well. Even Jamie Lee Curtis starting off with her career as she became kind of known as the screen queen for quite a while. Because after <laughs> Halloween, she did two or three other kind of slasher-based movies that she was the lead female in. She did sequels for Halloween. And she well. did do some sequels for Halloween at some point, too. So, you know, this is a, a, a start for many paths. It was also a very low-budget film. I think it was only done for a few hundred thousand dollars at the time, if, if even that. Okay. Um, you know, you, John Carpenter uh, directing, writing, and I think he, he did the original music for it as well. Um, it's a lot of iconic things happening in this film. With all that said, all the history behind it, all the, you know, uh, nostalgia, all of the first that came out of this. Chris, let me just ask you, I mean, was Halloween scary <laughs> looking at it now? You know, it's, it's 40 years old. Yeah. So if I had seen this film when it came out, I would have been four, and it definitely would have scared me. <laughs> now, four years old. Okay, now, sure. Now I am 44. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I was surprised at how unscary it was. Now, granted, you know, what is an R film in 1978 versus what is an R film in 2018? Well, yeah. huge gap. Well, there's and, that. And keeping in mind that, you know, it was... There hadn't really been many films like this at the time. True. And people were watching it on a big theater big screen, screen, which we were watching it on smaller home screens. And I think, you know, the the most effective tool in the arsenal here, I think, was the music. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the thing that's really strange to me, like it was striking to me, was how not scary it was. Now, there are one or two jump scares. There is the the setup and scenes of you just see this looming figure of Mike Myers and the fact that they give him this mask, which there again, you got to give it to him. That was before the hockey mask of Jason. So Mm -hmm. that, you know, there were several really ingenious things they did. However, it just seems they left a lot of potential on the table, which I guess, you know, later in subsequent sequels and other horror movies, they kind of tighten up things and it becomes a higher budget movie and maybe Mm -hmm. more successful. That being said, I can't dismiss, you know, the acting in this, I guess, low low budget. Some of the acting is terrible, 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 terrible. Jamie Lee Curtis, I think you could maybe, I mean, you surround yourself with people that aren't as good actors and maybe that just helps make you stand out. Not to say she's perfect in every line delivery, but I just feel like the charisma that she's exuding, yeah. you're like, okay, yeah, this girl's going to be big. <laughs> yep. She, she can take seemingly lame dialogue or the fact that she's in this low budget movie, 
but she's seemingly giving like an Oscar performance sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, yeah. And one of the times specifically that I'm thinking of, she has this dialogue sitting on a couch with this young boy who granted he's a real young kid. So not the best child actor. I don't know what mm-hmm. he went on to do, but he's giving her such like flat line readings, readings about being a scared kid and her responses and how she kind of takes the time and answering and everything like just kind of a master class of good acting, bad acting. Yeah. Granted, it is from a little kid, but still, I just the dichotomy there was really surprising to me. That well, you know, when you mentioned the acting, what I think is really interesting is that Donald Pleasance, who at the time was kind of the known name, they and his name comes in. up in the credits. Yeah, they early. brought him up. They brought him in specifically to play the role of Loomis. I thought he was pretty bad. <laughs> so, you know, it's like they supposedly spent the most amount of money on getting him. And he basically was just brought in for just the days he needed to be there. And he's out. Well, I so that I, I think he good. was, I think he was good, but I don't think he is. I think I could tell he was a good actor. There's a scene early in the car when he's having this dialogue with like a nurse mm-hmm. and you can tell he knows what he's doing. But I think as the film goes on, he's basically, <laughs> In one of our recent reviews, you described, I think it was Michelle Williams and Venom is reaching. You th- always thought she had a handoff screen that was ready to get the There's paycheck. The and the paycheck walk up. Yeah. yeah, I think that's what oh, Donald Pleasance was doing. Definitely by the time he got to the town oh and my gosh. Like looking around, There's it was a, ridiculous. There's a time in the town where a sh- the sheriff comes up to him. And, you know, Loomis is there looking for Mike Myers. And he says something like, oh, what are you doing? He's like, um, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm Loomis. Like, he struggles to remember, like, his character's name. Like, oh, yeah. who am I? Oh, yeah, I'm Loomis, and I'm here doing this. I was like, wait, did that just happen? I actually rewound it because I wanted to see that interaction. I'm like... Well, how about when he was, like, yeah. scaring the one kid who was looking in the oh. window? It was like, it was just... <laughs> it was an odd performance after you got away from the the breakout scene, which right. I agree. I think he was probably better in those scenes. But, sure. uh, anyway, when you talk about acting, uh, you know, I think Jamie Lee Curtis is the only one who really kind of comes out of this thing looking, looking good. good. So yeah. <laughs> True. Yeah. Um, some other things that yeah. I'll touch on that. Cause you know, we're it's 40 years old. We're giving it a hard time, but I want to touch on some things that I did like. I'd, I've already mentioned the score. You just mentioned one of the scenes that I thought was pretty effective it's early on in the movie when they're going to kind of, it's our introduction to Mike Myers essentially. And they're going to the hospital where he's been for 15 years since he stabbed his sister, spoiler. And they show it, you know, it's a dark and stormy night, which is kind of typical for, for these type of movies, but they drive up to the hospital and you just see this field Mm. and you see all these white blurs of, you know, escaped patients just kind of stumbling around. Yeah, that was a and really that, great shot. You know, and that's the thing is like that idea to do that, to stage it like that. So effective. Um, yeah. I liked the opening credits, which are very simple. No, yeah. Orange text on, on a black screen, but they have this lit up jack-o'-lantern and the jack-o'-lantern is not even scary. It just has this like, you know, goofy carved smile on it. But the fact they just maintain this slow push in and then eventually it does go dark. And so there's not a spotlight on the jack-o'-lantern anymore. And you're basically going into its eye or whatever. Mm-hmm. I thought that was, oh, you know, kind good. of effective and yeah. kind of setting the scene for things. What do you think of the, uh, cause I personally liked it. The whole point of view sequence at the beginning where we're seeing from Mike Myers perspective as a young boy, yes. him basically committing his first murder, which is kind of what got him committed. Granted, you know, I, we see a lot of point of view stuff now, now. In, nowadays, or we have over the last 40 years, I think as being the first time that was probably used in a horror film in that degree, I thought was really effective. I, I would agree. And that scene only falls apart for me 
when he comes end. out with his oh, parent, yeah. the terrible acting parents, no, the know. look on the kid's face, Mike yeah, Myers, the that look last at, shot is un- just the last shot of that sequence before it goes flashes forward is unfortunate. <laughs> so, just did not <laughs> end that way. sequence very well. So, no, yeah. I, I, I was also, um, you talk about how you, the point of view and like the breathing that you hear of Mike Myers, yeah. the tie in of that as the film closes you see kind of perspective view from Mike Myers and you hear this heavy breathing. And that was kind of a nice way to kind of mm-hmm. book in the movie. Um, something I wasn't expecting for it to be that tight. There's actually a scene later in the film kind of towards the end where there were little breadcrumbs dropped about why is Michael Myers doing this? He killed his sister, mm-hmm. but during the film you see a tombstone is taken out. And then there's kind of a reveal that I actually started I thought it started off well mm-hmm. <laughs> where you see one of his victims kind of laying out on the bed and you see a tombstone above her head, kind of like I'm kind of recreating, I'm setting all this back up. And I thought that was like, Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. that this is kind of, they're actually saying this is what he's kind of been doing the whole movie. I actually liked the initial little bit of setup, but then what goes on to happen is they have these like, trap doors opening and bodies falling down. It was kind of like a Scooby-Doo <laughs> reveal. Okay, that didn't work as much, yeah. but how it started off, yeah. you come into the bedroom and you see basically this tableau of, oh, he's kind of set this back up because in his mind, this is what's happening. I was like, oh, that's kind of an interesting callback. Mm. But then it does fall didn't apart. Quite, didn't quite follow through with it and the rest of the scene. No, and I think that's, you know, despite the low budget, this film was pretty ambitious oh and you know for its time being the first slasher movie something that it doesn't work for me but i admire what i think they were trying to do right after that scene you know michael myers starts to attack laurie strode you know played by um jamie lee curtis thank you jamie Mm -hmm. lee curtis she does this kind of stumble backwards fall over the banister and collapse downstairs to me very reminiscent of kind of the stalker scene in psycho kind of when, like oh, right, coming out yeah. of the bedroom norman mm-hmm. bates type thing and i wonder if they were directly paying homage mm. to that in some way but the thing is it's just you know i got to give them credit for like they're just trying stuff and mm-hmm. seeing what sticks they didn't work for me but when i saw that i was like huh that's interesting because yeah. that's kind of like a throwback and homage that doesn't quite work but it's it's ambitious. So. Yeah, that's the whole thing with this film is I think, you know, for what it was at the time, I, I think it was a very ambitious film. It was kind of breaking some molds of what people were used to seeing in a horror movie. And, I, you know, I thought all that was great. Um, I will say I didn't find this film particularly scary either, um, <laughs> especially by today's standards of sure. what we see. However, anytime we have a shot where somebody is looking out a window or looking down a sidewalk and you see Michael Myers off in the distance, wearing the mask, just standing and staring. Uh, there were like two or three instances of that in the film. There's Once, a clothesline sequence. There's a clothesline. Uh, uh, Laurie's looking from a window down, uh, a second-story window down. There's a clothesline. He's standing there in the clothesline. Very effective shot. There's another one where she looks, and he's standing out behind a car across the street, and then mm-hmm. he's gone. That Those kind of shots were great, and they're they're the kind of things that you know when I'm walking out to my car late at night. You know, I those are the things that frighten me. You look for me. Michael Myers I, just I, peeking out. The idea of the somebody being off in the distance, like with a stone cold look or a mask on, staring. Yeah, it's pretty creepy. So those shots work for me. Those were probably the scariest moments of the film for me, even though they weren't really. They're not jump scares. They're not violent. It's just creepy. You know. So yeah, and I, you know, 
interestingly enough, those were the scarier parts of the movie. Like you mentioned, when he's actually in the throes of killing somebody, it does come off as kind of flat. And, you know, maybe they were worried about censors and maybe making it X if it was too explicit with blood or gore or something. But, yeah, they just seemed kind of hokey. A lot of times he would just end up trying to strangle somebody. It didn't look very convincing. But I will say one of my favorite moments of the film and something that just seemed really... I don't know. I was surprised they did it, but I liked it. He does kill one of his victims with a big butcher knife. Um, and that was kind of like, okay, whatever. But he's basically impaled up on a wall. And mm-hmm. Mike Myers is just standing opposite looking at him. And then he just tilts his head ever so slightly. And the hmm. mask kind of like, huh? Like, you know, it was just a, it was a moment where they let the camera yeah, linger and he just tilts his head a little bit. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting touch there again, giving you saying like, okay, John Carpenter, Maybe this film's not perfect, but I see that he has a he's, trajectory. Yeah, right. <laughs> he's got some. He, I guess Jamie Lee Curtis and the director of this thing. You know, I can see they have potential. Yeah, yeah. You so, definitely see where this could start a mythology sure. from a film like this. So I think it definitely does a great job with that. You know, I feel bad us kind of throwing and bashing a little bit of this film. But we've I mean, said enough that we do. Film, but we do like it. Yeah, I know. It, it's it's obviously a classic. It's obviously you know, set the standard for so many things. Just, just saying how it doesn't really hold up. Doesn't really hold up. Hold up it's well. a little rough, in my opinion. And, sure. uh, you know, I think you could argue that, well, it's low budget and all. But, yeah. But, I mean, the things that didn't work for me as well, it was really all about acting and the people they had acting around them. Sure. And just some of the the scares were not as effective for me. Um, but overall, you know, we had a good time watching it. So What's it kind fun. of interesting to me is, you know, I just recently recommended Night of the Living Dead on the show. And I said, yeah, you know, not really scary, but you think of what they had to work with. And it was low budget and it was black and white. Making the jump to Halloween, I'm really surprised that this was not really scarier than Night of the Living yeah, Dead. Right, <laughs> so that, sure. That kind, of, that kind of surprised me. Yeah, um, that is kind of interesting. Because this came afterwards. And mm-hmm. so, but still, but it was, you know, did establish the genre, but I'm just surprised that it doesn't hold well, up as being scary. I just have to keep reminding myself that, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a teenager or a young adult in 1978, going to the movie theater and seeing this without any prior knowledge and seeing it up on a big screen. Yes. I do think it would be a much more effective, scarier. Think about it. For example, there's a okay. scene late in the film where it's something we can't take for granted so much now with the, the villain, the bad guy, the, the murderer, we think he's dead, but then he oh, rises up back. and all that keeps coming back. We kind of chuckle at that now watching a film like Halloween. It's like, oh, look, he's standing up again. Great. But imagine in that movie theater in 1978, I, I, I don't think people would take that for granted. I think that would have been pretty. And you get a crowd around you and everybody shrieks all at sure. the same time. Oh, yeah. Well, and actually there again, giving the movie credit. The build up, you know, sometimes that just, it just happens and you kind of, you know, now you would shrug your head at or, you know, shrug your shoulders. But then, yeah, it would be original. And I give credit to the movie, too. One of the times when it happens, they have him in the background yeah. with Laurie Strode in no, focus in the good. foreground. And you see him sit up. And that was just. It's like he's just creepy r- rising, man, rising from the dead. Yeah, like that, really that, that was, you know, that's genius. Something else that <laughs> you give this movie credit for. Um, maybe, maybe it happened before this, but you know, people making dumb decisions oh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. people yelling at the movie screen. That's just, you know, now we take it for granted that people are, Oh, why go into the scary house? Why go do this? Why, you know, why do you suddenly decide to make all these bad decisions? I 
caught myself shouting at Lori. She would use this knife and then just put it down. I'm like, wait a minute. Why are you putting the knife down? (laughs) You know, when pursued by a killer or when you have a killer anywhere near you, just always keep hold of the weapon. Just don't don't bother dropping it. Just keep hold of it. If the killer just dropped to the ground in the room, don't leave the room. And go sit on the floor and take some time to kind of collect your breath and, you right. know, and just reminisce about the event you just had when you're still eight feet away <laughs> from that. You know, get right. out of the house. Right. Go somewhere else. Get out of the house. Go to get somebody to come yeah. in. Yeah. It, it is the quintessential yell at the movie screen that people need to be smarter in the film. So, right. yeah. Um, and, yeah, it may very well have started. I mean, I, I know some of the the, the old – Horror films from the 50s and 60s had some of those. Sure. But this is the first time I can think of as a true mass killer, unstoppable force. And, you know, you know he's just going to keep coming and, and, and not easy to put down. So you'd like to th- see the, the uh, characters be a little more mindful of that. In those sure. scenes. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that is Halloween. Uh, obviously, we've been talking in some of our news sections about the the new Halloween film that's coming out now probably out by the time you're hearing this episode uh, directed by David Gordon Green um, who's a director we've been following for quite a while he's a North Carolina based filmmaker so we're or original so we obviously have some interest in, in, in connecting with him there and we just thought him doing Halloween was a very interesting choice not the kind of film I personally would have anticipated him doing so then my understanding is with this film, they have basically uh, cut out and removed all references to the other sequels. Right. So this is the, in their mind, in this timeline, I guess, is the only sequel to the original 1978 Halloween. It takes place 40 years after the right. events of the first film. So very so. interesting. Uh, we'll see how that comes together as a film. I was pleased to see that, of course, Jamie Lee Curtis is in it. You can tell from all the marketing. But the same fellow who is in the original Halloween playing the Michael Myers, which interestingly enough, they credit that as the shape. Yeah. And he is still credited in this film. I forget his name. Tony Um, Moran. But they credit him as the shape. Yeah. It's interesting that they're keeping. Why don't you just don't say. But it's almost as in as if kind of like Michael or the Loomis guy. He kind of Donald Pleasance. He kind of says. He keeps referring to him as kind of like a demon or pure yeah. evil. So it's like this guy really isn't Michael Myers anymore. He's just like this entity yeah. that can't be stopped. So it's interesting they credit him as I never quite the understood the, the reference of calling him the shape. I'm still not – I need to read up on that, just how that kind of got started. Right. Because it's never referred to that way in the film. No. But somehow over the course of the films, he's just – that's Michael Myers' character has kind of been called the shape, you know, and kind of been passing. So interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, I'm very curious to see what happens with, with the new film. And you're planning on seeing it? Yes, yes. I don't know if we'll review it on the show, but I'm definitely interested in seeing it. Yeah, so. I mean, just anytime you pair an interesting director with an interesting project and you tie into some uh, greater mythology, I think it's always kind of fun to see what happens. So we and will definitely be back to review that. Curious, too, a buddy of David Gordon Green's who's been in some films. He had uh, Eastbound and Down, but Danny McBride mm-hmm. is one of the writers on the film, too. Yeah. So I'm interested, you know, which... You know, I know him basically from comedic things. So seeing him help David Gordon Green with a horror movie makes me interested as well. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting project. We have mentioned it a few times in our news segments yes. over the episode. So I guess our the next time we talk about it will hopefully be a review and we'll see what we thought of it. So. Sure. All right. So that was our review of the 1978 classic 
original Halloween by John Carpenter. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we've got uh, one or two more new movie news items to discuss, and then we will end up the show with our recommendation for the episode. So stay tuned. You're listening to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. We'll get back to your show in a moment. Just a reminder, you're listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Find out more at themesh.tv and give us feedback on what you like. And now, as promised, back to your show. Welcome back to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. Again, this is Alan Jackson and Chris Fry, directors of the Foot Candle Film Festival and the Foot Candle Film Society. And uh, we want to move into some movie news. But before I do, just a couple quick things, little housekeeping notes about the show, just to remind you about this is a podcast that you're listening to on the Mesh.TV network. Um, no matter how you may have got to this episode, whether it's through a web page, whether it's through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or any of those other services, the great thing about a podcast is that you can choose to subscribe to the show, meaning that every time we put out a new episode, you're going to get it automatically through your platform of choice. Podcasts are free. They're easy to sign up for. You can listen to individual episodes or find the subscribe button on your service and that way you can be ensured that every time we post a new episode, it is delivered to your device of choice and able to be listened to right away. It's a great so, format, a great medium uh, for delivering content. So I know some of you are saying, wait, I'm paying $100 for each of these episodes. You mean I could have been getting them for free? <laughs> yes. yes. Chris, so don't, please don't tip off the people who are Start supporting your family and take that $100 and start giving them things and get these episodes for free. Uh, well, there goes our revenue stream. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, no, we it, it, podcasts are a great medium. It's, it's kind of like a DVR for online audio and video content. So uh, we would encourage you to subscribe to podcasts, whether it's ours or others you find interesting anywhere else on the internet. But you can also find some great ones on the mesh.tv network. So that's T-H-E-M-E-S-H.tv is the network address. And you can find this show and several others on that podcast network. Chris, I've got a couple of new news items. Uh, one really just to kind of explore and talk through, and then the other one is a little more of a a concept news item. I'll, I'll describe when we get to it. Okay. But uh, we, I don't think we've, I don't feel like we've talked about Star Wars in a while. <laughs> I think okay. the last, you know, we did the review of Solo, Solo a few months ago, but okay. since then it's been kind of quiet on the Star Wars front. But uh, there has been an announcement in the last week or so. They given us the title yet? Uh, of episode nine, no, no, no okay. it hasn't happened yet. Now, what we're talking about is a TV show. So, uh, they, Star Wars has been talking about having a TV show for quite a while. This is beyond the animated uh, shows that they've been okay. having, the Clone Wars and Rebels and people. so on. This Real is with live action. Live action. Um, Disney is going to be releasing a streaming service pretty soon, mm. and all the Star Wars content is going to be on that streaming service, along with all the Marvel, Marvel stuff movies. and the Disney films. Hmm. So. Keeping that in mind, but they announced several months ago that you know John Favreau, who was the Iron actor, Man. but he was also writer and director of Iron Man. Okay. Um, I think director. I think he had a hand in writing it too. Okay, um, and he's also done some other movies. He did, uh, gosh, what Chef, was Chef, which we reviewed on the show and both liked. Um, he did one of the Jungle Book remakes, didn't he? 
he did the uh, the one that came out. Yeah, the, the main one that we've seen. That was the live action, but with the more photorealistic CGI animals. Yeah. Right. So yeah, he's had a, a pretty interesting style uh, director's uh, director list. But he is tapped as kind of the the head guy for a new Star Wars show. Hmm. He's I know for a fact the writer, and I was thinking he was going to be the director of some of the episodes, but I've actually learned now that he he's not. He's actually handing that off to some other people. Okay. So let me just tell you the show. They did announce the name of the show and kind of the summary of the show itself. Cash grab. <laughs> Star Wars cash grab. Episode seven point five. The cash grab. <laughs> um, the show's name is going to be The Mandalorian. Okay. Okay. The summary is that as sounds, follows. That should sound familiar, but I recognize the term, but I don't know what it means. Well, let me give you the description and then okay. it'll, it'll all come clear. After the stories of Jango and Boba Fett, another warrior emerges in the Star Wars universe. The Mandalorian is set after the fall of the Empire and before the emergence of the First Order. We follow the travels of a lone gunfighter in the outer reaches of the galaxy, far from the authority of the New Republic. So the Mandalorian, so the Mandalorian, good guy, bad guy. Don't know, don't know. But Boba Fett and Jango Fett were Mandalorians, so it's in that same vein. Okay. But instead of it being one of those two characters, it's a whole new character. But it sounds to be a little bit more of a um, gunslinger traveling the universe, uh, having adventures or, or lawlessness, whatever it may so be. So Mandalorian is just like Klingon or whatever. It's like yeah. a race of. Okay, I believe so. Huh. Now. You want me to tell you some things that make it even more interesting as a show. This is going to be an online streaming TV show. Okay. So X number of episodes for a season, whatever it may be. John Favreau is writing the series, but they are tapping some people to come in and direct different episodes. Okay. So I'm going to kind of go from maybe least interesting to most interesting. <laughs> okay. Um, Deborah Chow, not familiar with her, but she did a 2010 film the High Cost of Living. Hmm. Not as familiar with that work, but she's tapped to do an episode. Dave Filoni, who directed the Star Wars Clone Wars movie, the animated movie, uh, back in 2008, okay. will do an episode. Um, Bryce Dallas Howard, the actress, Ron Howard's daughter, that is interesting. will be directing an episode. Rick Famuyiwa, Fama, Fama <laughs> who, um, uh, who did doing? the film Dope. Oh, okay. Yep. He's going to be directing I saw an episode. That. Okay. And then Taika Waititi is going to direct an episode of the show as well. Hmm. So they're bringing in a really kind of eclectic sense of people to make Which different I guess, episodes. You know, Disney knows him from Thor Ragnarok. Mm-hmm. So Taika so, Waititi is the one thing that's really got me going. Hmm. I mean, Bryce Dallas Howard, interesting. She's directing, but um, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if John Favreau is going to be directing maybe like the first or last episode or something. And if other people are just coming in to do other ones, but um, it's starting to take shape. Hmm. And they, uh, they did post one image, which was basically a shot of someone who looks kind of like a Boba Fett, slightly different armor colors and all. So it's going to carry that same look of a Boba Fett character, but it'll be somebody else in that Mandalorian race. Do we know sometime in 2019 or just whenever the Disney streaming service launches? I Is think it's the- probably going to be whenever the Disney streaming service launches. Cause I think they want this to be like a big reason to sign on to the service. You'll be able to get all your classic Disney movies. You'll be able to get some of the Marvel movies. You'll be able to get classic star Wars stuff. And Oh, Hey, we got this new star Wars live or, or, or a television show. Oh, that makes me so sad because I've always 
been so happy about Netflix being my one-stop shop. I don't do Hulu. I don't do HBO yeah, Go. I don't do any of that stuff. And I'm not – and, you know, I, I missed out on the Twin Peaks revival because I didn't do Showtime, which I'm sad about. But I'm just going to end up buying it on DVD. Um, so I guess that's how I'm going to have to end up if it's any good. I guess that's how I'm going to have to end up seeing the Mandalorian long past when everybody else has seen it. I'll have to get it on that ancient form of yeah. media called DVD. Yeah. But that's sad because I don't want to pay for another streaming service. Cause if I start paying for another one, then it's just like, I have to pay for all of them. Can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> it, it does start to add up. So it's going to be some interesting choices people will need to make when all these services are available. Well, I wonder if Disney at some point, would then let it stream other places or where they only let it stream I don't on know. Disney. I, hmm. It's really hard to say at this point. So, um, but yeah, the whole streaming services, everybody wants their streaming service nowadays. So yeah, well, um, I understand it's Disney. Rather, I think probably revenue. has the better chance of being a, a really popular one just because I think every family that has little kids and wants all the Disney movies will do it. Any kids, you know, anybody wants the, the Marvel franchise stuff. I wonder. Yeah. Fingertips. So that's an interesting, it's interesting. Um, with this whole Mandalorian concept, the fact that it's streaming, so it doesn't have to be on broadcast, and it's not a movie, but I wonder, you know, but from the directors you've announced, you know, Taika Waititi specifically, and, you know, it doesn't sound like they're going to choose to go go more adult. They're going to choose to make it more like, and they have the Clone Wars director, so they're going to make it more kind of adventure, serialized, kid-friendly, maybe? I don't know. So, yeah. It'd be very interesting. All we have is the little blurb and the one photograph, and that's hmm. it. So The Mandalorian. I'm intrigued because I think it could sound like an interesting series. It's the kind of <clears throat> Star Wars story I'm, I've been kind of curious to see for a while, which is it's okay to tell us a story that doesn't have to directly connect to Luke Skywalker and sure. Darth Vader. You know, it's okay to tell us about somebody on the far reaches of the universe who's kind of dealing with the whole empire and galactic order thing on the side but has their own stuff going on. And I think that's kind of interesting to see what happens. Rogue One was probably the closest we got to that, although it was still very tightly integrated with the Star Wars trilogy. Sure. But it was the most outside of that, where we had some characters that kind of had their own thing going on. And I, you know, I'm one of those people, a lot of people don't like Rogue One. I liked Rogue One. So So I'm, I'm okay with them exploring the universe a little bit more and give us something that just... Is Star Wars named? It has a look of a Star Wars thing, and there's some little minor little connections here and there. But give us something unique and, and original that we can follow on this. And I think that could be fun. You know, taking that idea of what you just said, imagine if you will, the movie Solo, but the character wasn't Han Solo; he was the Mandalorian instead. That I think that would have been awesome. The mm-hmm. fact that he would not only did they have to tell a story, but it had to be Han Solo, like. Because the structure, all the stuff that happened in Solo, which I liked it, but I admit there were some, you know, some problems with it. If it would have just been an outside character that we didn't know still playing in the Star Wars universe, I think it would have been, you know. Plus, it would have gone in with very low expectations, expectations. for people. So There's I think people too. might have gone in with a more open mind and been uh, fresh and kind of see it as a brand new adventure and be a little more uh, uh, appreciative of it. So what, what I'm curious about, last thing, you know, we could just talk about Star Wars forever, but Ryan Johnson. I had thought for a while that, you know, they'd said, congratulations, you did this one movie. We're letting J.J. come back and direct the last episode nine. And then when I'd first, I thought he was then going to be writing some of this TV series. Oh, he's doing a whole other series. He is doing another series of movies. Okay, but it is movies. So because it's not TV. He doesn't. Obviously, you just announced all the stuff that had to do with this. So it is movie movies. It's supposed to be another 
trilogy of movies outside okay. of the Skywalker. See, I'd heard, I'd heard it, but then then I'd heard a TV series, so I was thinking maybe they shifted stuff, his focus. But, they have a okay. lot of stuff hopping around, but no, I, I think all those projects are still on the table. Okay, they're still talking about doing standalone Star Wars story movies. Okay. Just like they did Solo, but they have slowed the production pace. <laughs> because they're like, because <laughs> so, Solo didn't do so well. Then we've got the TV show, which will be kind of the, uh, the key program on the Disney streaming service. The kind of the big thing that tries to get you enticed to it's come like on board. Orange is the New Black or ne- right. House of yeah. Cards. House of Cards was with Netflix right. and all. But yeah, Ryan Johnson's film trilogy is still supposed to be still on the happening. table. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention on the news side, and it's just more of an interesting trend that I don't know if it's picked up lately or if I'm just maybe seeing it more, but seeing several articles in the last couple of weeks about projects that are happening or coming up or, or being released now, all sharing a common trait. And these are films that are being directed by actors. So we talked about in our last episode, a star is born Bradley Cooper, first time directing a film I thought did extremely well. So he's now someone I'm curious to see what he directs next. Okay. But there's three other projects I know of that are either have just come out or close to coming out that are all by kind of fairly big name actors. And <laughs> let me run through these three projects. Sure. And I'm just curious if is this a is this something we're seeing more of now or is this something that's always been there? Maybe this whole idea of actors just wanting to become directors. I know we've always seen it. Right. I just don't know if we're seeing more of a proliferation of it now because it seems like every other article I'm looking at films coming up are by actors. So. Well, I've wondered when Polly Shore was going to have his debut. So please tell, right, me, well, tell me what great. he's working well, we'll on. We'll get to that on the list. And, uh, Melanie Laurent, who okay. uh, in glorious bastards. And then she's been a lot of things since then as well. She's actually directed, I think five or six films. Okay. So, you know, yeah, she's actually done a lot. She's done documentary. She's done, uh, supposedly she did a, a, a documentary about climate change. She did a hmm. film that was a, Portrait of Toxic Female Friendship called Breathe in 2014. She's now got a film called Galveston, which is a uh, kind of a true crime adaptation. Nick Pizzolatto, who actually wrote, uh, created the two true detective series on HBO. Okay. This is an adaptation of his first novel hmm. and it stars um, Elle Fanning and Ben Foster. So, that's kind of interesting. Again, I didn't even know she was a director. So I was not aware was, of that. I was kind of curious to find that out. She's directed five features now, wow. which is kind of interesting. So we've got a film like that. We've got Paul Dano making a film. He's got a film that's out now that's called Wildlife. Uh, the reviews have not been so good. Um, Say so it's a little slow and uh, bland. I'm like, well, well, it could be Paul Dano in, in, in a nutshell. Oh. <laughs> so, sorry. Wow. I, just, I still have a problem with him. As an actor. But uh, Wildlife actually stars uh, Carrie Mulligan and Jake Gyllenhaal. Okay. And the concept of the film is, oh, I had it up here in a second, following a teenager that grows up in Great Falls, Montana, back in the 60s, Hmm. with the threat of an atomic bomb looming overhead, forest burnings within sight of their town. So it's kind of, Um, it's a period, a little bit of a period piece. A little bit of a period piece, but it really focuses on this fractious divide between his parents played by Joan Hall and Carrie Mulligan. Okay. So a little bit of a family drama to it, a period family drama, but the reviews have been not great. Just saying it's very uh, bland and slow and, and there's not a lot to it, but still hmm. Paul Dano 
now working his directorial debut, so the first film for him. So you're saving Shore for last, right? <laughs> well, all right, as close up. as you're going to get to Polly Shore, which is not very close, is okay. uh, Jonah Hill. Oh, okay. Jonah Hill has now made a film, too, called Mid-90s. Doesn't star any real stars. I think Lucas Hedge is, is in it, So and Catherine Watterson. So okay. a couple, couple names, but really kids are kind of the main thing. Sounds a little bit like a boyhood type of film. Um, it's all about taking place in the mid nineties. It's following a group of kids and kind of following along in their life at the time. A lot of nostalgia mixed in. It's also Jonah Hill's you know kind of debut as a director to do this film. So you know I'm just hearing these these stories over and over again. Now that's like four in just the last week that we've talked about that are mm-hmm. actors doing their first uh, direction, or maybe they've done a few and we're just now finding out about that. What's your gut feel? Is this something that, I mean, has this always been there and we've just not really played it up as much? Or do you feel like there's actually a little more proliferation of it now than before? I feel, you know, it's always been around, um, but I feel like maybe now with the outlets increasing, like Netflix, I mean, you mentioned yeah, Bryce true. Dallas Howard getting to do, granted, it was a streaming TV series for Star Wars, but I think maybe... It's increased a little bit now that the yeah, number right. of outlets, it's not just theatrical anymore, but it yeah. does seem just the three you mentioned. Yeah. It does seem like it has increased. So I definitely feel like it has, there's more and more people coming out as, as directors that I wouldn't have anticipated being a director. Um, just from the persona we got to know them for from as an actor. Sure. But um, I'm personally always curious about these projects. I love to see how someone who's been in front of the camera for quite a while you know, each of these actors we mentioned has at least a dozen or more credits to their name acting wise and probably right. a lot more in some places. So to put them behind the camera and to see how they would view it and plus all the experience they've had working with other directors now mm-hmm. bringing to their own sure. uh, how they craft a film. I mentioned in our review of A Star is Born how I thought Bradley Cooper, it felt like to me, took a lot of David O. Russell's filmmaking style and kind of injected it into a star is born. So again, I could see that happening in a lot of other cases with actors as well. So I personally am really curious. These are all projects I'm going to be watching now to see if any of these emerge as true filmmaking talents, or if it's more of just uh, something, an itch they needed to scratch. It's like, I just want to have one director credit to my name. And the one that I can think of in the past that did have success, but not in his personal life um, would be Mel Gibson. Um, You know, he came off and he did Braveheart. He did uh, Passion of the Christ or The Passion. And then he did um, Apocalypto. And I think after Mm -hmm. that, maybe he's had another one. But it's like, you know, he did have great success after being an actor for a while. So it'll be interesting to see. Doesn't sound like Paul Dana will be getting (laughs) nominated for But it'll be interesting. Melanie Laurence and Jonas Hill have actually gotten pretty good reviews. But uh, Paul Dano, not so much the first time out. But hey, you know, who knows? Well, yeah, you got Mel Gibson. I know, of course, you go all the way back to like Robert Redford. Sure. Becoming a director and kind of a Mm well-known one for a while. There's a lot of examples, I realize. It's just it seems like there's just a lot seems more like the, popping the frequency up right, now. right now. But I think sure. you're right. I think it's the number of distribution channels and the opportunities that, you know, all these streaming networks and other places are looking for to make a film and uh, taking a known quantity like an actor and putting them behind a, as a director is probably a good selling point. Too. Well, and, you know, good selling point and as well as, OK, they're starting something. They have this streaming service. They know instead of paying 15 actors, they're like, well, this person has mentioned they want to get into directing. Everybody knows them as an actor, but it's kind of like, you know, 
we'll kind of, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. We'll let you come get your first directing job, yeah, but we get the buzz off there your name. There could be some of that too. <laughs> so, well, you yeah, know, you right. never know. Interesting. All right. Well, that's our movie news for the episode. Uh, mainly just wanted to talk about The Mandalorian, but uh, we're going to kind of keep an eye on some of these uh, projects coming up from actors turned directors as well. So, Chris, let's go ahead and move into the final segment of our show, which is our recommendations. This is where Chris and I both come up with a film that we either recently caught back up with or got to see or maybe uh, remembered having seen in the past that we think is just worth people checking out and we want to recommend it to you. Normally, we like to say that the films are ones that you can find online, available. I will go ahead and say mine at the moment is not. Um, you will have to seek it out a little bit more. Um, if it's okay, I'll go ahead and jump yeah, into mine. Ahead, so let me go ahead and tell you about my film recommendation. It's one that I got exposed to just a few days ago. Um, we had the opportunity here in our, our area to uh, help, help host a screening. It was putting on by the Morganton Film Society down the road from us. But we uh, kind of helped promote it as well. It's a documentary called Bisbee 17, directed by Robert Green. And uh, we actually got to have a Q&A with Robert Green by Skype afterwards. He was hoping to join us, but uh, was not able to due to the uh, Hurricane Michael storm that was knocking out a lot of flights. But this film, Chris, I think I texted you afterwards, and I think I referred to it as the reverse American animals. And there's a reason for this. <laughs> this is an interesting statement to me. Yeah, this is a documentary. But it's a documentary that, and this is much of what Robert Greene has done previously in his, in his work as well, it's a blending of a narrative elements into a documentary-style style movie. He previously did uh, the film Kate Plays Christine, which was chronicling a real, uh, real life situation, a real thing that happened, a real event. This is the woman that, Christine, that killed herself on air, you right. know, as a newscaster. But he was following, as a documentary, a woman who was going to be preparing to play Christine in a recreation or a film on her own. So this is a style he's kind of adapted, and it's very evident here in Bisbee 17 as well. The story behind this film is there's an old mining town on the Arizona-Mexico border that 100 years ago had a mass deportation of 1,200 immigrant miners out of the town. Okay. It was done in a very public way. Basically, the sheriff at the time felt that there was a union starting within the miners, which there was. But he was telling everybody in the town that the union was going to basically cause bloodshed on the streets and was mm. going to revolt. Okay. So he deputized many, many people in the town to go and round up these immigrants, these miners that he felt like were part of the union. And it didn't matter. It, it if it was, they knew that that person was in the union, they knew that person was sympathetic to the union or had any support for the union, they rounded them up. Okay. Round them all up, march them down to the ball field in the middle of town, and then load them up into trucks, and they drove them out into the middle of the desert. Wow. And dropped them off and wow. said, if you ever come back to this town again, we'll shoot you on sight. Wow. <laughs> 1,200 people. For a town that was not but a few thousand so, people to begin with. So all men or women, children? No, and... no. A uh, combination of all. Okay. So what this documentary is about is it's people starting to come to grips with this part of their history because this is supposedly not something they've talked about in the last hundred years. Okay. Um, you know, the townspeople, it's a great little town. They show you the, the town seems pretty awesome, but there's that dark secret underneath it. 
So now it's 100 years. There is a committee that's starting to put on some acknowledgement of that event, the, kind of from a historical standpoint. They're going to have a ceremony and they're going to have an event to kind of commemorate this event, this thing 100 years ago. Gotcha. Well, Robert Greene actually and his crew went in and they got the town interested in the idea of doing a recreation of this deportation process. So they were actually going, they actually had townspeople play the roles of some of them as the people who rounded up the immigrants, other people playing the immigrants who got rounded up and actually stage everything. So through the course of the film, you see this recreation and it's truly, so it's not the buildup. It's kind of spliced in. It is spliced in as we lead up to the film, but it all culminates with the actual rounding them up in the ball field and then putting them in the trucks and driving them off. Gotcha. Um, here's what's really interesting in the film. So it's, it's a documentary about this town coming to grips with this, this, this event, but also how they're going to stage this recreation. So you've got some town people who are being given the role of someone who's going to go round up the immigrants. And there's one case in particular, one gentleman where we learned that his father, I think, was someone who did round up the immigrants back then uh, or grandfather great, great or, so, yeah, grandfather so or something. Somebody like further up in their lineage. Right. So now he's having to play that same role and kind of how he deals with that and kind of what kind of mental, emotional impact it has on him. Hmm. There's a lot of little interesting stories like that. The main character we follow, follow who's meant to be one of the immigrants who comes to town and learns about the union and then decides to stand up for the union. We kind of follow his story. Got you. But it's acted by a kid, uh, a young guy who didn't know anything about the story. Okay. He was basically said, Hey, I want to act. And they let him have this part, but he himself is an immigrant and he has some, his own past history with immigration issues too. Hmm. So watching them all kind of understand what this event was about and how it now impacts them personally. And then watching this recreation, man, it's Sounds a really, fascinating. really good film. Sounds good. So it just will cut in between behind the scenes, documentary telling the story and then the actual acting that these guys are doing to put on these scenes. Hmm. And man, it's a really, really good film. So Bisbee 17, uh, highly recommended for me. I think it's definitely something worth exploring, discussing, sharing. Um, Very, very creative documentary film. And just, you know, just for an event that, you know, you just kind of have a hard time believing that a town in America in 100 years did that kind of thing. Sure. Um, And of course, also all the echoes it has now to, immigration issues and discussions that are on the public stage now really kind of tie that in and make that even more impactful. So please be 17. It is something you have to seek out because it's not available online or anything yet. It is playing in select cities. Now, as we write this, it is having a kind of a limited theatrical run in certain uh, independent cinemas. So, but please keep your eye out for it. It's worth seeing if it comes to uh, near your city, I'd recommend going to check it out. Um, or hopefully it'll be online available within a few months. So. Yeah, I, I, Alan spoke to me about it. I didn't get a chance to catch the screening, but then I went online trying to seek it out and through their through a website for the film and through other things. I noticed that, yeah, it is kind of playing like a limited theatrical. There's some smaller art house cinemas are kind of hosting screenings and stuff. So there's a chance you can still uh, catch it on the screen. But if not, you can be like me and <laughs> wait for it anxiously Just to show to up in, yeah. on iTunes or Hulu or something. All right. Well, what's your recommendation, Chris? So my recommendation is actually going to tie back to both uh, things that we've mentioned in the show, both Halloween and uh, First Man, because 
like First Man, it is kind of a biopic, but it's much more traditional in a sense that okay. uh, it's the film Stronger that came out in 2017, mm. and it tells the true life story of Jeff Bowman, who was a person who got injured in the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013. Oh, right. Okay, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal plays. Uh, Jeff Bowman, but it's directed by David Gordon Green, who mm. is directing the new Halloween that's coming out. So that's how it kind of ties into that whole discussion. Um, I saw this film and, you know, it kind of came and went in 2017. Wasn't a really a lot of fanfare. Yeah. But of course, I sought it out because it was by David Gordon Green, who I try to watch most of what he does. And I really, really liked it. Mm. Um, it's kind of in an interesting take on the first man aspect where they kind of pare down a lot of emotion and it doesn't end up kind of comes off kind of coming becoming cold and not really working for us this kind of pared down what you could assume would be a lot of anti-terrorist rhetoric um or kind of patriotism type Mm -hmm. stuff and you would think would overwhelm a movie like this and it doesn't it just really gets simplified towards this is something terrible that happened to this guy and how he kind of comes to terms with it physically and emotionally. So he really he really keeps the focus on him. On him, okay. correct. Good. And I thought it was just, it was really well done. And uh, like I said, Jake Gyllenhaal does a really good job. And his girlfriend, played by Tatiana Maslany, I think I'm saying her name correctly. Yeah, yeah, she's good. She's also really good. Yeah. Have so, you ever seen, you've never seen the show uh, Orphan Black, have you? I have not. Mm-hmm. I have heard yeah. of it. But, um, she's good in that. She's good in that. But yeah. this is a, you know, a, kind of a smaller film that uh, came out and came and went in 2017, but... I think it's pretty good. And by the director of the new Halloween. So stronger is the name of it. And you know, that's one when it came out, I didn't have a lot of interest because Jake Gyllenhaal, I was still trying to decide if I liked him as an actor or not. <laughs> and plus the top, you know, it's just, I think it was coming out the same time. Some other, I think there's one called the, Patriot, Patriot day or day. something that was more of a dramatic yeah. recreation of the event of the bombing. Right. So yeah. So just, I think this probably got lost in the shuffle just I from a scheduling and release schedule. Uh, but I did hear some good things after the fact, so I'm glad glad you got a chance to catch up with it and, and, and can recommend it as well. All right, great. Well, that is our show. We're going to go ahead and wrap it up. So we uh, talked about the film First Man with some very split feelings about the film. Uh, and then we also discussed the original 1978 Halloween, which we both find to be dated, but <laughs> we can acknowledge and respect the uh, the craftsmanship that went into it at the time. Um, and I think it's worth checking if you've never seen it. Oh, well, yeah, I think it's worth checking it, out just it. because of the historical aspect of it. And it still doesn't hold up, but there are aspects there are of moments. it that are pretty ingenious for yeah, the time. There so. are some moments. Uh, and then we also did our news items. And then we close out with our recommendations with Chris had the film Stronger. And I had the documentary Bisbee 17. So, Chris. People have listened. They heard us talk about Halloween, and they're just incensed right now because how could we possibly <laughs> get sure. throw any shade towards the original Halloween, right. the classic that it is? So, somebody wants to chew us a new one. How would they go about doing so? Do we want to a Do we want to encourage them to do it? <laughs> and then B, if they do, how how would they do that? Sure. You know, if you want to rush to the defense of Halloween, you can send us an email at info at the mesh TV and mention Foot Candle Films in the subject line. And we'll try to respond to you or, you know, who knows, we may dialogue with you over the show. Um, also, Alan has mentioned how we are co-directors of both the Foot Candle Film Society and the Foot Candle Film Festival. 
I would be neglecting my duty if I didn't say submissions for that festival, which will be in 2019, the next one. We actually start accepting them November 1st. God, is it that time already? So, yeah, we're coming towards the end of uh, October. So that means wow. submissions will open up for the 2019 festival. So to do that, you just uh, we submit, accept submissions through Film Freeway. So if you're a filmmaker and interested in submitting, there you go. All right. That's great. Well, that is our show then. I thank you all so much for listening. We appreciate the, uh, the listening and the feedback and, and the support of the show. And uh, we will look forward to sharing some more film discussion and reviews with you next time. See you in the ticket line. Special thanks to Carpal Tuller for the show theme music. For more about Carpal Tuller, visit www.carpaltuller.com. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.